I do pray that you've been blessed by our series on parables these last few weeks, and I also pray that we've been able to maybe show you some things and explain some things in ways that you haven't thought about before. And I would pray that maybe the most that we could accomplish is that not only you're closer to God through the parables, but that you also maybe have a little bit different understanding of, of how to use the parables and why they matter. Obviously, I, I like to say that nothing that I preach is new. As, as the book of Ecclesiastes says that we just got done studying, there's nothing new under the sun. In fact, I like to say, if I come up with something brand new, you better run. <laughs> Don't trust me. But hopefully, I can say things in a way that's maybe new for you, or maybe some way that connects a few things better for you. And I just pray that with every sermon, especially these series on the parables. Parables, as we've talked about, especially the last couple of weeks, are not just to inform, but they are primarily concerned with eliciting a response. Jesus is not so concerned about the people just getting the lesson. But as we've talked about with the parable of the unrighteous steward, or the unjust manager last week, and of the lost parables we talked about a couple weeks ago, Jesus is posing Jesus is posing these stories, these parables, in order that not only the people hearing them may think about them and understand them, but then go, wait, what does this mean for me? What must I do from this? What if this is true, if the principle is true, if this lesson is true, what does it mean that I must do? And secondly, something we'll get into a little bit more today, which I want to bring back home, is that parables are, oft, are also very much concerned with identity. It's the identities of the people that understand, or at least are striving to understand, God's amazing grace, as well as its demands, but also take it seriously then, enough to respond. Well, respond how? Well, look at the, some of the lessons we've looked at the last couple of weeks. Respond how? Well, to respond to know the joy of the kingdom, to know the joy of God's character and our, our people who are willing to celebrate whenever we see something that's worth celebrating, something being redeemed that's been lost, something being revealed which has been hidden, something that, 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 that just screams, this is God versus evil. What other people? People who are changed and empowered to not just look at people, but to see people and see them. Yes, even them, whoever them is, to see them as people that God loves and therefore we must, not just in word or in thought or in mind, but in deed and in action. People who take care of the poor, and the troubled, and the oppressed, and the unseen. In other words, the people who take care of the people that Jesus took care of, and who do not, by our sense of holiness, separate ourselves from those who need not just us, but need the presence of God most. And indeed, the people who are wise and who are faithful in view of what God is doing, both in what he has done, what he is doing in the current moment, present, year, as well as what he is doing in the future up until the ultimate putting right of the world.
Now, we've covered just a few parables in this series, and we can't cover... I suppose we could cover them all, but that's I want to cover other things this year. Uh, we've covered a few things. And one of the things I've hopefully tried to hit home is that our point is not just understand them, but we also ought to understand how then we are living them. For example, who can you or can't you forgive, or who don't you forgive as you've been forgiven, like the servant from Matthew 18, one we didn't cover, but the unforgiving servant. We need to ask ourselves from these parables, is there any debt or any financial or otherwise debt that is really more important, really more than the debt that God has forgiven you as Jesus taught in Luke 7? We need to ask ourselves from these parables, how do we truly celebrate, not just acknowledge, but celebrate in the character of joy that God has created that or whom which was lost and how do we go about that why do we go about that do we go about that from the prodigal son and the lost parables as i already mentioned and what do we build on in our lives that sand and what maybe needs to be torn down and built rebuilt on the rock of jesus christ as christ ends his sermon on the mount with these are the better questions to ask of parables, not just, oh, what does this mean, but what do they mean in our lives? It's the questions that the parables ask of us, which are arguably the most important once we understand what the parable is asking in the first place. When we read parables, we must not only understand the exegesis and the study, its context, but we must understand not just the details of the parables, but we must understand why Jesus is using this parable here, as well as where is this parable in our life? And therefore, what does it mean for our identity currently, or maybe what it should be, as well as what would we do? Would we be the Pharisee or the tax collector in the temple, and why? See, these aren't questions that we want to ask in public. These are not questions which I'm going to sit there and say, hey, you, you there, give me an answer. These are questions that we need to come before God and the Spirit when we read Scripture and say, God, am I the Pharisee? Am I, am I the elder brother? Am I the unforgiving servant? Am I the lost sheep? These are the parables, and these are the questions which we must not only ask of them, but let them ask of us. If nothing else in the last few weeks, if you get that, I'm happy. <laughs> if nothing else, I do want to end, though, by looking at two parables which I would like to frame 
as a challenge to us, not just in terms of understanding parables, but as a challenge to the church, as a challenge to us in this time still of quarantine, in this time of transition, in this time of this year, this time of, of political, it's, a, it's an election year. As you probably, and we all probably know, I probably don't need to remind you, it's an election year, but in this time of, of crises all through the year, of racial and ethnic unrest, of of social and injustice, and this these I mean, every year has its problems, and every year has its trials. This year has seemed to have more of them than most. I think, especially in this year, especially especially in this year, but especially whenever time we find ourselves, I like to offer these two parables as a final challenge for the questions that the parables ask of us and how we may respond. The first one is from Matthew chapter 20, and Thomas Wood already read that a little bit earlier, and so I'm not going to go necessarily all through it and read it. But the first one is the parable of the laborers in the vineyard from Matthew 20. I'll read the next one. I'm covering two, so I'm not going to read this one. Thomas already read it uh, a little bit earlier, so hopefully you can follow along and we can be all on the same page. The first thing we need to realize about this parable is its context. Now, that's true of every kind of scripture and of every single passage. And anytime we open the scripture, we need to realize its context. But we need to realize the context is framed not just in the immediate context of chapter 20, but this is framed in a much larger context all the way from probably from the beginning of Matthew 19 all the way through the end of Matthew chapter 20. And it's dealing... Jesus is dealing with the issues of status and wealth and greed and discipleship and the reversal, and I'm spoiling a little bit here, I'm just, the reversal of the world's values in the value system of the kingdom. You see, what do we have here all the way uh, from Matthew, probably actually more or less Matthew chapter 19 verse 13. We have Jesus saying that, let not let the little children come to me, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs, the children who are considered to be least and, and unimportant, know Jesus is saying, yes, their status and their identity and their value in the kingdom is just as important. Theirs is the kingdom of God. You have the rich young ruler who has obeyed the law, who has riches, and yet cannot give them up for the sake of following Christ. You have Peter. <laughs> oh, Peter. Uh, Peter asking. Now, what do we get? Peter asking in verse 27. Sorry, just Peter asking in verse 27. And then Peter said in reply, See, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? I, this is one of those moments I can just see Jesus going, Oh, Peter. I love you, but Peter. <laughs> We do that sometimes with each other, or at least we ought to. Peter asking what they'll receive for following Christ. And after, we even have the context of his death being foretold, a mother's request, Jesus healing two blind men, Jesus addressing a woman's needs, addressing the outcasts once again before the triumphal entry. This is all framed in the context of status and greed and value and discipleship. 
an expectation. So what are some things that I want to comment on as far as this passage goes? Well, the passage itself, I think we've, we've, we understand fairly well. One thing that may be helpful is that a denarius was about a day's wage for a worker, and it was a common cultural practice that even the Torah recognized that you paid them, you paid your laborers that you hired immediately at the end of the day because they would literally need that money, maybe even to go buy bread, just them. That was something which implied to them right then. They needed it that day. This is the process of give us a stare daily bread. There are questions about who is this addressed to? Is it addressed to the Pharisees? Is it addressed to the disciples? Contextually, it seems like although in the beginning of chapter 19 he's addressing the Pharisees and the crowds uh, with the disciples and the teacher and the rich young ruler and in verse 23 it said to his disciples the immediate context seems to be that he's addressing his disciples mainly and obviously anyone else who hears I don't think that Jesus was one that would that would have two different sermons that he would preach one to the Pharisees that are listening okay and then you guys get this one I think Jesus was equal opportunity godly teaching so this is mainly to the disciples and anyone else who heard. The thing is I want to make very clear about this parable is that traditionally and historically it has often been used to contrast work salvation with grace salvation. And how that's usually been used is, well, you see that no matter how much work you put in, you can't earn it. It's only by the grace of the master, or God in this case, allegorizing a little bit, that gives you what you are, what, what he will give you. And so you can't earn it. Now, the thing is, that doesn't make a lot of sense with this parable, because in the parable, the details are that the workers are working for their wage. And in the parable, no one actually receives grace. Did you notice that? You may say, well, the, the owner was very generous to the ones who were, who were hired later as opposed to the ones earlier, but yes, that was the condition. You come work for me for a day's wage. And be, to be perfectly honest, if this really were about grace and generosity and the goodness of God, we would expect it to be uh, a little hyperbolic, like the 30, 60, and 100-fold of, of, of the plants, or, or you know, forgive him 77 times, 77, seven, 70 times, 7 times. He gives them a day's wage, exactly what they earned, exactly what they worked for. And on top of that... People sometimes allegorize the owner to exactly be, you know, this is God and self-fate. There's no particular good relationship between the vineyard workers and the owner. He goes out and hires them, and they say, hey, I could use it. He comes in, and he says, I'll pay you a denarius. And they go, okay. It's a strictly business relationship. So what's the point of the parable? Because I, I mean, just even from a very quick reading, I don't think that's it, what I just talked about. Because contextually, it makes no sense. You have to read in a lot of things in order to get those conclusions, which we sometimes do. What's the point of the parable? What's the emphasis of the parable? What is the, the conflict of the parable? It's verse 10. 
Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. What's the conflict? Not the generosity of the owner, per se, and not that they were complaining about not being in the grace. The conflict is about the goodness of the owner, the generosity of the owner, but in what context? It's the generosity and goodness of the owner in the context of the complaint of those who thought they deserved more. Because yes, technically they did work more. But that's not what the owner agreed to. The owner agreed to give them a generous. And so he even says, friend, and that's not a that's not a positive friend. He's like, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me to take a denarius, take what belongs to you and go? I choose to give this to the last workers I give you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with the, what belongs to me, or do you begrudge my generosity? So the first will be last. For, so the first, the last will be first, and the first will be last. The tension point here, the focus of this parable is not about works versus grace, because they work. And the owner doesn't exactly give them much grace. He's just fulfilling his contract. The, the point is, is that the owner gives a day's wage to those who have worked in the part of a day for someone, but it's contrary to the expectation of those who worked longer. That's the focus. And so what is this really addressing? It's not addressing works salvation versus faith salvation. It's not, it's not about grace, really. It's actually about judgment. It's about judgment in the sense that it addresses justice and goodness done to others and the envy that that creates in other people. The complaint focuses on those who thought they should get more. And the owner says, why do you think you should get more? I will do what I please with what is mine. I choose to give denarius because I said I would. Why do you think you ought to get more? See, and that's a complaint which you've seen with the Pharisees. They thought that they deserved to be at the table. They thought that they deserved more than the outcasts, than the, than the Gentiles, God forbid, than anyone else. And so Jesus is addressing this expectation of, of children, of women, of Peter saying, hey, we've left everything, what do we get? And Jesus is saying, look, already if you're asking what do we get or what did they get, if you're trying to frame justice through terms of jealousy, let's be honest, sometimes what we consider just is actually more about what either we don't have or someone else has that we don't. Now, don't you dare make this a political issue. I'm not talking partisan politics. I'm talking about you and your heart. Justice sometimes is more about what you don't have or more about what others do have. And what you think you ought to get, what you think you ought to have, versus what others that you think they ought to or ought not to have. Even if it's not you personally, we do it sometimes. Justice cannot be framed through jealousy, and especially God's judgment. This is the point of the parable. God's judgment is not based 
on any human standards of justice. This parable breaks any connection between reward and work done for God and human perceptions of what is right. This parable teaches that God is the just judge will give as he will and he is able to do that because he's God. God's judging is not regulated by any human perception of justice, thank goodness. And lurking behind that statement is a whole theology of mercy, not necessarily grace, although that's in there too. Grace and mercy are underneath this. The whole point of this is us being content with the judgment of God both in a positive towards others as well as negative towards others, but also in a positive towards us and a negative towards us, at least how we perceive it. God's judgment is just. Now, why do I bring this up? Why do I bring this up as a challenge to us when it talks about parables? Well, remember my, my challenge of letting the parables ask us questions. In what do we, as a modern church, what do we as a modern church pursue in the name of justice, which is more about jealousy? What do we as a modern church strive for in our country that we do in the name of Christ or in the name of justice, but it's really more about politics or finances? What do we do as people? That can be perceived, especially by others, as justice through jealousy, as righteousness through envy, and how we don't acknowledge the goodness, not just that's done to us, but the goodness of God done to the world, regardless if it's us or not. The world, especially in these times, need to see a content church who is content in the judgment of God, for better or worse. Moving on, and I'll tie this together in just a minute. Moving on, the next parable that I want to talk about is just a few pages to the left, and that's in Matthew chapter 13. And this is in two sections. This is after the parable of the sower, which we talked about several weeks ago. I do invite you back if you would like to, if you want to pause this and go back and, and read, read, watch, watch or read that. You know, however you want to ingest it, go for it. But this starts in verse 24. And this one, I actually will read because we haven't read it yet. Matthew 13, 24 through 30. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered. Because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let us both grow together, let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. There's a little bit of a hiatus in the text here with the mustard seed and leaven and the prophecy of parables. 
they're related. They belong here. I'm not going to get into them. But then in verse 36, the prophecy, uh, the parable of this parable is explained. He says, he left the crowd and went into the house. The disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man, Jesus himself. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out his kingdom, out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all to do evil. And will throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be, weep, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. So, this is a pretty interesting one. This is this is an eschatological one. This is a kingdom-focused one. This is this is a good parable. Um, the reason I chose this one to end on, especially because I think this is actually one of the most pertinent ones that we can take away from the questions that the parables ask us, and I'll explain that here in a minute. First of all. A wheat and a tear, or a wheat and a weeds. The reason why it's so hard to to pull them out is because for the first bit of development, they look almost exactly the same. It's very, very hard to tell which is a wheat and which is a tear, which is a wheat and which is a weed. And they look very, very similar until they're the end, and by the end, it's very hard to get in there and weed. So that's the basic premise of this: is that there are weeds that are sown by an enemy mixed in we can't really tell which one's which and so we have to let them grow and sort them out eventually now where this parable has gone <laughs> you like that <laughs> i don't know often this is interpreted about how the church is a mix of good and evil people sheep and goats if you will and it will be sorted out at the end <laughs> He says the field is the world, and once you grow up, it's, it's not a, it, there's reasons, uh, hopefully I'll bring it together, there's reasons why that's not the best interpretation. And the second one that's not a very good interpretation is uh, that maybe this is a way of saying that, well, we need to be really, me as the church need to be silent on evil because God will sort it out at the end. Those kind of almost go hand in hand. Sometimes this is, this is told as a way of, of how the church deals with heretics. Oh, let them go, and God will deal with them at the end. There's also allegories abound <laughs> about how this is interpreted. Here, here's why I don't think those are good. If you read the entire, if you read this parable in isolation, maybe you could get there. But how many times does Jesus commend the church for saying, you must be different, you must be different, you must be different. Don't talk, Paul in the epistles, do not, you know, Paul in the epistles, Jesus in the gospels. Evil's not tolerated in the church, at least it shouldn't be. Maybe we do now, but that's another story. Evil in the gospels and the Bible is not tolerated in the church. If someone is sinning, or if there's a wolf in sheep's clothing is talked about, it's dealt with. Evil is dealt with over and over and over. Likewise, I don't know if you can get an interpretation which is saying you must be passive against evil because the whole Old Testament is about speaking out against evil and oppression and injustice. Jesus has come to be the righteousness of God, speaking out against that. The whole context of the Gospels are about Jesus writing that which is wronged. So I don't think you can get those interpretations. At least you shouldn't. 
Also, this isn't about church politics. This isn't about church discipline because this this is not about just just the church. The reason those interpretations exist is because the people have asked the wrong questions. The question we must ask is what is the question that this parable answers? The question that this parable answers is how can this be the kingdom of God? How can the kingdom be instituted? How can the kingdom have, have come? How can the kingdom be here if there is still evil that's not only present but working and among us sometimes we can't even tell if the kingdom is present if the kingdom is real how come they're still evil this is this is a jumping off point into if you know how can a loving god allow evil and suffering in the world we can deal with that at a later time i invite you to contact me and, and we can we can deal with that but what this parable is teaching is not that oh well you know there will be some good, some bad, God will sort it out. Nor is it seeking ill. God is teaching that the kingdom is present even if the ultimate judgment isn't present. This is Job, actually. Very much so. This is an old prophet. Uh, old prophet. Well, a lot of old prophets in the Old Testament. This parable teaches that judgment will ultimately come. And yes, the kingdom will cause a sifting of good and evil. But it also teaches us that God is not the only agent at work in the world. Not every action can be attributed to God. There are agents of anti-God, of evil, that are seeking to sow what they want to sow. Now, there are rabbit trails galore down here. Just keep with me. There are agents that are not God working in the world. Not every action can be attributed to God. And the ultimate sifting, the ultimate judgment will put everything right. But the question that the parable addresses is how can there be the kingdom? The question, the answer is there is the kingdom that is present and is coming, even if there's evil. Therefore, what the parable is teaching is that Christians, his disciples, Christians, the church, we should not be surprised, nor should we be unaware at the presence of evil in the world and how it can infiltrate even the church walls, the church relationships. This is what the parable is teaching. It's teaching that, yes, sometimes Golly things and evil things look very, very similar. We shouldn't be surprised whenever we realize, oh, that which I thought was, was a good thing, you know, that's an evil thing. We shouldn't be surprised. We should be aware. Remember, Jesus teaches us that we need to be innocent as doves, but yet as smart as serpents, as sharp as, as shrewd as vipers. It doesn't mean we ignore it and are naive. It means that we need to be aware. We shouldn't be surprised whenever evil rears its head. We shouldn't be surprised when division and disunity and sin rears its head in this world. We shouldn't be naive. We shouldn't be unaware. We shouldn't be going, Oh my! What is God doing? We should be going, Yep, we know. The other question is, however, from which reality the evil 
or the kingdom do we take our identity? Which reality from the wheat or the tares do we sustain ourselves? What do we focus on trying to make sure that wheat is really wheat? Or trying to do God's job of trying to sort everything out? Ultimately. Now, this does, I think, say that we need, when we see a tear, when we see evil, we call it out. Part of the church's witness in the world is to speak out against evil and injustice. That's clear from Jesus' ministry. But we shouldn't be surprised that we have to do this. But nor should we be surprised whenever we encounter resistance. But also neither should we be surprised when we have to adjust our tactics to be able to maybe turn some of the tares into wheat. From which food, from which sustenance, from which source will we take our identity? And what will we trust in the fact that there will be chaos or that ultimately, yes, God will sort it out until then, we still need to speak out where we can and harvest and tend our field. Why is this one an important one for us to consider nowadays? Because the world does not need the world does not need a church which reacts. The world need a church needs a church that leads towards the goodness of God. Three things maybe to take away as a final word on these series. The world needs to see the righteousness of God lived out before them. How to deal with envy and justice, goodness and grace in a healthy way, in a godly way. Not according to the world's standards. Not according to at their level, but on God's level. Two, as I said, we should not and cannot be surprised at evil in the world, but must not be defined at all by it. And three, the world needs to see what judgment looks like. Not condemnation, but one's defined, judgment defined by a good God's righteous, forgiving judgment which has come to his people and will come for those who trust in him. What would it be like if the world saw a church that was living out justice, living out goodness, living out dealing with envy and disunity, living out the joy and the grace and the confidence of knowing that, yes, God has judged me through the blood of his Son. What witness could the church be in a world which is stricken by racial, ethnic, financial, political division. To see someone so, to see a world so caught in left and right, to see someone finally pointing to the up and the down. Let us be asked these questions by the parables that we may live them out that our lives 
They ask the same questions of the world through which they may come to know God. Let us be a living continual parable of Jesus Christ. And may the world have ears to hear and eyes to see as Christians live their lives in the grace of God. Grace to you.